Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 22. As we step into Luke 22, verses 39 to 46 this evening, not a long chunk of Scripture. Jesus has done all that He can to prepare His disciples for His death as far as teaching is concerned. Judas has gone out already to betray our Lord into the hands of sinners. The Passover meal is over. The fellowship is over. It's now time to, for Jesus to prepare Himself for His great temptation. Nothing happens in this life of spiritual value outside of prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. It's the lifeblood of the church. It is the essence of our relationship with God. It is in the Scriptures that we learn how to please the Lord, even as we uh, considered this morning in our time together in Colossians 2 and 3. It is in the Scriptures that we find out how to think and how to act and what God expects of us and what God has done for us. But it is in the spirit of prayer that we receive the power to make these things effectual in our lives. It is in the spirit of prayer that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and shows us how it relates to us in a more real way. Indeed, I could probably devote a sermon per week to the topic of prayer, and it might still be insufficient as a reflection of just how important prayer is to the Christian life. It's a topic which we'll, we'll consider for the whole of our time together this evening. Uh, in Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, we begin in verse 39, and the Bible says this, And he, that would be Jesus, came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. So Jesus and his followers have left the upper room, and as Jesus had done regularly during this last week in Jerusalem, and earlier in the book of Luke it said that, that he spent his nights throughout that week on the Mount of Olives, he ventured out to the Mount of Olives to pray. We see that his disciples followed him. We don't necessarily know if his disciples always followed him to the Mount of Olives, but we would presume that they did uh, as they followed him everywhere he went. The text reminds us that he did this regularly, that it was his habit to be in prayer. And it is important for us to understand this. It reminds us of Jesus's humanity. Indeed, we know that Jesus is God, that he is God in flesh. And yet, perhaps we sometimes fail to appreciate the humanity of Christ we think of him and we know that he was without sin and we know that, that he knew the hearts of men as we walk through the Gospels, right? Uh, that, that men will say something and the Bible says that Jesus knew their thoughts, Jesus knew their heart and, and we see these things and yet we are reminded this evening that as Jesus communicated with the Father, it was through prayer. The same way we communicate with the Father. Jesus used the same tools that we have at our disposal to fellowship, to communicate with the Father. And Jesus, to this end, made prayer a priority. Verse 40, the Bible says, And when he was at the place, that would be the Mount of Olives, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. This is the content of, that pray, uh, of the prayer that he calls for them to pray. 
that they enter not into temptation. Now, in our English language, this can be read one of two ways. First, it could be read, pray in order that you would not fall into temptation. The idea of it being read this way would be that the exercise of prayer itself is a guard against being tempted. So if they don't want to be tempted, they should pray and thus exercise the, uh, exercising themselves in prayer, they would avoid temptation. The second way we could read this in the English, not pray in order that you do not enter into temptation, but rather pray this prayer the content of your prayer being pray to God that he that you would not enter into temptation make a direct request to God asking that you not be tempted and there's quite a difference between the two and the question is which one do we find this evening which one is Jesus telling them well if you dig into, uh, look, looking into the Greek and, and, and reading the sentence as it flows, I believe that it's more likely the second. And I'm going to give you some other evidences that would lend ourselves to this idea that what Jesus was asking them to do is to literally pray that they would not enter into the temptation. Not that the prayer would keep, the, that, that, that by praying, just the, the act of prayer, they would be kept, but rather that they should petition God explicitly not to be brought into temptation, that that would be the content of their prayer. And one of the reasons why I believe this, other than just the, the original languages, is that this was a part of Luke's model prayer. If you remember, excuse me, Jesus' model prayer that we read in Luke, in Luke 11, verse 4, in, in the model prayer, you also find it, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and this is a part of the prayer, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A part of Christ's model prayer, as we read it in the Gospels, is praying that God would not lead us into temptation. Praying explicitly that God would not lead us into temptation, but would deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the hour of temptation itself. So I believe that also lends itself to the idea. I'm sorry, that didn't switch. It also lends itself to the idea that that's what Jesus was expressing here that the disciples should do, is pray that they would not enter into temptation to begin with. Now, Jesus is making it clear by this that the night is not just about him and his trial and his temptation, but it was about theirs as well. And the question then becomes, what will this temptation be? I'd like to present two perspectives, both of which have distinct elements, but kind of land in the same place. First, the first idea is that the temptation itself is to forsake the will of the Father. That as Jesus will pray... The temptation of the hour was the temptation to refuse the cross. Similarly, the temptation of the disciples would be to forsake Jesus in the hour of his trial and his death. Now we know as we look forward, and, and, and we all know the, the account, the disciples will forsake Jesus in the hour of his trial and his death. But I don't believe, once again, I don't believe that that is the deepest essence 
of what this temptation actually will be. The second idea is that the temptation was the circumstances that they will, uh, as they will unfold, the trial, the death, the sorrow, the pain, and that they are to pray that they would not need to enter into that temptation at all. Now, on the surface, the second idea seems silly. Why would you pray that you would not enter into the temptation at all? Jesus has said for years now that he would have to die, right? Jesus has been saying for years uh, that, that he would go to the cross. He has been telling his disciples this whole night what to expect, he even told several of his, uh, he, he told Peter, he told his disciples they would fail and he told Peter how he would fail. So what good would it be to pray against that temptation? Well, to this end, the first explanation makes the most sense. That these disciples were praying that in the midst of the trial, they would be faithful. But once again, if I might hit you with a little bit of nuance this evening, I don't believe that is the deepest essence of what Jesus is saying here. And the first reason why I don't believe this is what Jesus is saying here is what we've already mentioned. The idea of Jesus' command and even the idea behind the phrase, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer, is that we are praying and Jesus asked his disciples to pray that they would not even enter into the temptation at all. That they were to pray that God would deliver them from this evil. But the second reason why I don't believe Jesus was simply instructing them to pray that they would handle the temptation well is because of Jesus' prayer that we read in verses 41 and 42. In verses 41 and 42, the Bible gives us Christ's prayer, and it says this, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The reason why I don't believe Jesus is instructing them simply to pray for the strength to endure the temptation, but rather to pray that the temptation would not come, is because that's what Jesus prayed. That's what Jesus prayed. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Now, I'm making an assumption here. I'm making an assumption about what the cup is that Jesus is asking to remove. So again, we're going to keep digging down layer and layer and layer here. I'm clarifying these statements so that we can know what Christ is saying. What is the cup? What is it that Jesus is asking to have removed? If we believe that the cup is simply the urging of his own will to forsake the Father, that the cup is the temptation to forsake the Father's will, that the cup is his own desire to forsake the Father's will, and asking that the cup of his, his desire to forsake the Father's will would be removed from him, that he doesn't want to die, he doesn't want to suffer. Jesus is asking the Father to remove the temptation within and without to refuse him, well, that would be what Jesus, that, that would have to be the cup. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm not being very clear this evening. I'm bumbling a little bit. That would have to be the cup if Jesus was commanding his disciples to watch and pray so that they wouldn't fall into the temptation. That would have to be the cup. The cup would have to be Jesus' own desire to forsake the will of the Father and the disciples' desire to forsake the will of the Father if he was telling his disciples that they should be praying not to 
falter in the hour of temptation. But the next statement would kind of invalidate that, wouldn't it? When Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Imagine how strange it would be for Jesus to be on his knees asking the Father to remove the cup if the cup is Jesus' own desire to forsake the Father's will, but at the end of a prayer, asking God to remove the desire to forsake the Father's will, he says, but Father, if it's your will for me to want to break your will, then I'll submit to your will to allow me to break your will. That doesn't make any sense, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. So the cup cannot be the temptation to break the Father's will, the temptation to not go to the cross when the Father has made it clear that it's time to go to the cross. That can't be the cup. In like manner, it wouldn't make sense necessarily for the disciples to simply be praying for something that would be contrary to the will of God and then say, God, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So then we need to understand or we need to dig down a little bit and understand what is this cup that Jesus is praying to have removed from him. And if we can discern what this cup is that Jesus is praying to have removed from him, then we can start perhaps to see some of these things fall into place. Most often when we talk about the cup as not something literal, but metaphorical in the Bible, it's talking about a circumstance or a set of circumstances. Most regularly, that circumstance or that set of circumstances, that imagery of the cup is meant to talk about God's wrath, which the guilty will drink which will be poured out upon them. We see this regularly in the Old Testament and the New. Psalm 75, verse 8, the Bible says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. If you've ever been drinking something, and at the bottom of the glass has been some sediment, uh, maybe you've been drinking some fruit concoction and there's still some parts of it that, that were, were left in the cup and it kind of goes to the bottom. Or maybe you've had a hard day's work. I don't know, when I used to, when I used to roof, we'd have some cups and we'd drink out of them and, and, and at the bottom of that cup was always plenty of dirt at, at the, on the bottom of that cup. And you just, you drink the water and you, when you get near the dirt, then you just kind of leave a little water on the bottom and then you try to shove it out with the, with, with the last little bit of water and then you fill it back up again. The, that, that's, that's the dregs, right? That's the junk at the bottom of the cup. In, in, in a wine or in a, in, a, in a grape setting, it would, it would be the sediment from that and the bottom of the cup from, from the process of, of um, squeezing the, the grapes and such and getting the juice out. And God likens the wicked to drinking the cup, including the dregs, the refuse of God's dealings. Uh, we see other examples of this. Isaiah 51, verses 17 and then 22. Verse 17 says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Verse 22, Thus saith thy Lord the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it. Again, so Jerusalem was said to have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury and the dregs of the cup of trembling. Thus, the cup in this sense was God's anger, God's wrath. In both of these senses thus far, the cup has been God's wrath that they drink as they fill it up. 
Revelation talks about this as well. Revelation 16, 19. And the city, this is speaking of Babylon, uh, was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Again, God's wrath here is the cup. And indeed, it is often the case in that negative sense that the cup of God is filled with his wrath and his fury, and it was filled up by the person or people or nation that then God demands drinks the cup. They drink the cup that they have filled up of God's wrath. However, it's not always used in a negative connotation in the Bible. The cup can carry a positive idea as well, such as in Psalm 116, verse 13, where the psalmist writes, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. To take the cup of salvation would be to receive at the Lord's hand His deliverance. Indeed, we might even see that as somewhat metaphorical an allusion to that which we even do in our observance of the Lord's table together. Even among the disciples of Jesus, this idea had come up before, this idea of drinking of the cup. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, we read this. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Here it is. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. He said unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them of whom it is prepared of my father. So the cup there is to be a partaker in his life, in his testimony, in his sufferings, in his trials. And this is the common thread of the cup as as it is generally used. It speaks of a circumstance or a set of circumstances that have been collected, that have filled a cup, that at some point one must drink. And generally, as I've mentioned, this cup is drunk by the one who filled it. To this end it would be quite unfounded to believe that the cup which Jesus was asking to have removed from him would simply be a desire to not do God's will, a desire to walk away from the cross. This would not be the Father's cup. Nothing would have filled up in relation to a temptation to forsake the Father that, could be, that, that, that would fill up in the eyes of the Father and then have to be drunk here. Indeed, the Bible tells us God does not tempt men with evil. So to be praying that God would not allow such a temptation would be to acknowledge that God was tempting him to begin with. That's not the Father's cup. Any temptation that Jesus had to forsake the will of the Father was his own. That was his alone. That was not from the Father. That was not a Father's tempting. That was not a cup given to him of the Father. Is there any alternative then? Is there some other cup which Jesus might soon drink? Well, absolutely. In a few short hours, Jesus is going to climb Golgotha and be crucified. Once again, the crucifixion is not the cup from the Lord. 
The crucifixion is man's work, not the Father's work. So that's not the Father's cup to give him. So the Father's cup is not Jesus' own heart, maybe, desiring to forsake the will of the Father. The Father's cup is not the, wicked, the wickedness of men being poured out on Christ. What is the cup? Well, we spoke about it a little bit Sunday morning last week. Matthew 27, 46 records a moment where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is, as I mentioned last week, the first and indeed the only time in the New Testament where in a prayer Jesus refers to God not as his Father. Jesus' relationship with God here changes from a familial relationship to a judicial relationship as God the Father judges Jesus Christ with your sin and with my sin. In other words, Jesus in that moment drinks the cup of God's wrath that had been filled up for transgressions Whose transgressions? Our transgressions. This is really the only cup that makes sense in relation to Jesus' prayer. His own temptations would not be the Father's cup. The wicked devices of men would not be the Father's cup. But that God would pour out His wrath for sin on Christ is very much in line with what we see of what the cup is throughout the Scriptures. It is that which God is providing and then we are drinking or we are partaking of. Whether his wrath or, or in the case of Psalm 116, his salvation. And we know that Christ did this. Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He laid on Christ our iniquity. He poured out His wrath on Christ. God placed our sin on Jesus, at which point the Father and the Son, two persons of the inseparable Trinity, were separated. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against sin on that cross, and indeed, we see this even more clearly acknowledged in John 18. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. And as Jesus talks with the mob, we read this in John 18, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant. We'll talk more about that next week. And cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said unto Peter, pick up thy sword, put up thy sword, excuse me, into thy sheet. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? His Father has prepared for him a cup. Now we know then that, that he did not drink the cup in the garden, right? Because here we're done with the garden and he still says the cup has to be drank. And so we know that that's not the case. The cup yet existed in Jesus' prayer in the garden. It was yet to come. It was yet to be realized. So it was either the act of being crucified or it was the sin being placed upon him, the, the cup of God's wrath. Again, the act of being crucified was not 
the father's doing, the father allowed it, desired it. It was a part of his will. He was pleased, but it was that, that was man's wrath. What was God's wrath? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I believe, again, this is not um, consensus, but I believe that the cup that Jesus asked the Father to pass from him was the cup of wrath against sin. Now remember where we're coming from with this. I'm getting to a point about prayer. What is Jesus asking for the disciples to pray here? To pray that they might have the power to overcome the temptation to flee when the hour of testing comes? Or did he exhort them to pray that the hour of testing itself might not come? And what I believe we see from the example of Jesus' prayer, from the example of the text, from the example of Jesus' model prayer, is that he is asking them, he is telling them that they should be asking God that the hour of testing itself might not come. That if there were any way that they could avoid the test, just as Jesus is praying, if there's any way that Jesus could avoid drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, that he could do that instead. But the last bit of this prayer is very important. After the request, Jesus prays humbly, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And to gain a little more insight into this statement of reservation, I would like for us to consider the account in Matthew. At this point, you might be a little bit confused because you're thinking, why would Jesus pray that the event not take place if the event has been foreordained before the foundation of the world? Pastor, this doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus pray that the cup be removed from him if the cup was God pouring out his wrath of mankind upon Christ who had to be slain? Why would Jesus ask the disciples to pray not to enter into a temptation if that has already even been prophesied? So stay with me here because I understand that this isn't making the most sense from this surface level perspective. In Matthew 26, we see a slight evolution in the prayer of Jesus throughout his time in the garden. And we also gain a bit more insight into what the disciples did with the exhortation of Jesus to watch and pray. We read in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, and the Bible says this, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and began to be very sorrowful and very, uh, and to be sorrowful and very heavy, excuse me. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And when he went a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were were heavy. So in the Matthew account, we find that Jesus asked his disciples to pray. 
But we also find that he took his three innermost, the ones that he regularly took with him and all of these little things, his, uh, Peter, James, and John, a little bit closer to him and asked them that they would watch and pray with him because his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Jesus then goes a little bit further and he prays. And the content of his first prayer is very similar to that which we read in the Luke account. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That's the content of the Luke prayer, which is literally God, if at all possible, let me not go through this. That's, that's the content of that prayer, unless the cup is the temptation itself to flee, which we've already said doesn't seem logical, right? So the cup is actually the suffering. The cup is actually this, this circumstance, particularly and specifically the outpouring of God's wrath upon him. And he is saying, God, if it is, if it is possible in any way, let that cup pass from me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, is what he's praying here. Jesus at some point goes over to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. He woke them, and this time he exhorted them to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. Jesus then goes a second time into the garden, and notice he prays something different this time, highlighted here in yellow. He says, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. The first prayer was an urgent and genuine request to not have to drink this cup. The second prayer was a resigned statement saying, God, and by the way, for those of you on our Tuesday night class, this if statement is a first class condition, meaning he expects it to be a true statement. We could even put a since in there instead of if. Since this cup cannot pass away from me except I drink it. Thy will be done. Throughout the course of Jesus' time in prayer, His will aligned in a deeper and more foundational way with the will of the Father. To this end, He was strengthened in His will through prayer, even through the prayer of asking not to have to go through it, He was strengthened in His will to confront the trial that was upon Him. Keep this in mind. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Back in Luke, verses 43 and 44, the Bible says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Only in Luke do we read of this particular detail from Jesus' night in prayer. As Jesus was praying, the text tells us an angel appeared from heaven. So this was not some earthly messenger that was speaking to him, which the angel can mean, but this was a heavenly messenger, a heavenly minister who came to strengthen him. Whether this was divine strength to continue in prayer or whether this was divine strength preparing him for the cup of God's wrath, which he was going to drink, um, we don't really know. I'd say it was probably that, that it was uh, preparing him for the actual temptation that was to come. God sent an angel to minister him that night. We know this to be sure. And indeed, so great was Jesus' anguish over the wrath of God that was about to be poured out upon him, that he was about to bear, that in his agony and earnestness, 
his sweat contained blood. The as it were there in the text does not imply that the concept of Jesus sweating blood was parabolic or metaphorical. It doesn't mean that this didn't actually happen. Uh, Rather, the phrase helps us understand that it was not like full blood that was dripping from his body, uh, only it was a a blood and sweat mixture, as it were. Uh, As it were, drops of blood. If you've ever seen a person so stressed or so worked up that their veins are just popping out all over the place, uh, when a person gets that stressed, various parts of the body, such stress could cause the small capillaries to burst so portions of blood would mix in the pores with the sweat as it fell off of him. And that's the idea there as Luke is describing it. It's intended to show just how great Jesus' agony was in the garden, just how much he was agonizing in prayer, just how important and how exhausting this effort of Christ's was, how heavy the weight of what was about to happen rested upon him. Such agony was not shared, however, by his disciples who were exhausted to the extent that they were sleeping. This exhaustion was not an apathy. It was not just them saying, well, whatever, Jesus is telling us to pray. Prayer, okay, let's just go to sleep. The Bible tells us as we continue in Luke that it was emotional exhaustion that caused them to fall asleep. So we read in verses 45 and 46, when he arose up from prayer and he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, the text says, and said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Jesus raises his disciples. They are sorrowful. They are tired. It's been an emotionally exhausting day, but there's something more important for them to be doing at this moment. Jesus gives them a similar, though distinct, exhortation. Rise and pray, he says, lest ye enter into temptation. Rise and pray in order that ye may not enter into temptation. The first exhortation was telling them what to pray, that they would not enter into temptation. This second exhortation was telling them why to pray, because they don't want to enter into that temptation. Now again, it's important to stress, in this instance, Jesus is not saying that if they pray, they will not be tempted. Jesus is saying, if you need to pray so that you might not be tempted. Not that the praying will keep them from temptation, but the praying could keep them from temptation. And it is in this reality that I want to focus our application. I apologize if this has sounded a little bit scattered, but but there's a, a direct line of thinking on prayer that I want us to get a hold of this evening. It's something that I believe is very important to our prayer life that many of us don't have or don't exercise fully, or if we do exercise it, we don't actually understand what's going on. Jesus first commands his disciples to pray to God asking him that they would not enter into temptation. Jesus then gets on his knees and asks God that he might be spared from his own temptation from the cup of God's wrath. But here's the thing. Neither one of them was spared. Neither one of them was spared. Jesus still drank the cup of God's wrath. The disciples still uh, had their own temptation. They fled. The disciples who did not pray went through their temptation which we would expect because they did not pray. But Christ went through his also, even though he spent the night in agony and prayer. Well, then what good was the prayer? 
Well, we've spoken many times about prayer before. We've asked the questions and answered them. Why pray? What to pray? How to pray? We've walked through these concepts when we studied the model prayer. We've considered them in several different ways. But the exhortation of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the prayer of Jesus himself there, and the outcome of that night teaches us a valuable lesson about the functional purpose of prayer. Because though they both still went through their temptation, one of them went through it successfully and one of them did not. Let's lay down a few principles about prayer before we dig into this. These are just general principles that we've talked about before in some way. This is not all of them by any means. A few principles of prayer. Number one, we know that prayer does not inform God, right? Prayer is not meant to inform God of our needs. Jesus makes this clear when he warns in Matthew 6 against repetitious prayer. Verses 7 and 8, he says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. So it's not as if we need to repeat our prayers all the time because God may not hear us and we need to inform God of our needs and he might be asleep right now, so we'll just keep praying the prayer until we're confident that he heard us. We, we are not praying to inform God of our needs. God knows our needs before we ask them. Second, Prayer is not simply an exercise. We know this as well, that prayer is beneficial. Prayer is effective. It is effectual. It is not just uh, uh, the, the Christian form of meditation where all it does is calm our hearts and calm our minds and then cause us to find a new place of peace that then helps us along the way. Prayer is not just empty ritual. Prayer is not just an exercise for my own benefit. Prayer is effective. Jesus went on to teach in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Jesus teaches us here that we are to pray, that we are to pray for the things we desire, and that God desires to give us good things. God desires to bless his children. The book of James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 2, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Now, this being said, that prayer is not just an exercise. Prayer is effectual. Prayer does change things. There is a very clear biblical principle that dictates when prayer is answered and when it is not. God answers prayers according to his will. God answers prayers according to his will. If we were to continue in James 4, I read James 4 verse 2. James 4 verse 3 says this, Ye ask and receive not... Because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. If we pray for selfish, self-serving things, in other words, if we petition God in our flesh, we can be pretty confident that God is not going to give us the things that we're asking for 
because those things are contrary to his desire. They are, they are fleshly things. So it is that John writes in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Well, now things are getting interesting. Because many, perhaps even most times when we pray, we're praying because we have desires and we don't know God's will. So how can we pray according to God's will if we don't know God's will? And furthermore, what should we pray when we do know God's will, but it is when, when we do know God's will, Sorry, my notes here are a little bit confusing to me. But it isn't in alignment. Uh, but what I want is not in alignment with God's will, right? So, so I do know God's will, and what I want isn't in alignment with it. And this is where Jesus' time in the garden really helps us here. If, as I have stated, and, and, and if, if, if you've rejected the premise that Jesus is legitimately praying that God would remove this from him, if you rejected the premise that it's not just about the temptation, but it's actually about the, the, the events at hand, then none of this makes any sense and, and you can just ignore me. But if you agree with my premise, or at least you're willing to entertain my premise this evening, then follow me through to this conclusion. Jesus is legitimately praying for his desire, which is also an important element of prayer. Jesus prays that he would not be led into temptation, but rather to be delivered from evil. The legitimate desire of Jesus' heart is that he would not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Now, he knows God's will. And God's will is that all men would be saved. He knows God's will. Yes, the Father's will is that all men would be saved. How that comes about is not the most explicit part of God's will, but only that it comes about. So in other words, what I mean by that is Jesus gets on his knees and he says, Father, your will is that all men would, would, would be able to be saved. It is not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You need to bring about that circumstance because no, no man can get there on your own, on his own. But if there's any other way other than me having to bear their sin, would you do that instead? That is the sincere desire of Jesus' heart. Jesus, knowing the Father's will is to save all mankind, and knowing that the Father has ordained this path for redemption, whereby Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath, prays that if there's any other way to make this come about, that God the Father would grant that that other way might be realized. All the while, however, notice what is taking place in Jesus' heart. As Jesus is praying, and he's praying, God, if there's any other possible way, let that come to pass. Perhaps Jesus is contemplating the very truths that we just talked about. If I pray anything according to God's will, I know that he hears me. And if he hears me, then I know I have the things which I desired of him. Which means now, as Jesus has laid his desire, knowing that God desires to give good gifts to his children, as Jesus has laid the desire before the Father, 
he is now ready to trust whatever the father does with it. Which means if the father comes back and says, you're still drinking the cup, son, which is what Jesus would expect and we would expect. Well, here's the thing. Jesus now knows in his heart that this is the only way. That this is the way that the father has ordained in a heightened way in a new way, in a better way, Jesus now has fortified his heart that as I follow the Father's will, this is it. This is the Father's will. And he knows that. And he knows that in a greater way after he petitions God that if there's any other possible way, please let that be the way. I hope this is making sense. Jesus' heart is being fortified in the reality of God's will as he petitions for his own. Jesus is pleading with the Father for a different path, but his heart is being reaffirmed in the necessity that God's will must be accomplished. So much so that this time in prayer, it serves not only to petition God, but also to instill in Christ's heart the confidence that the suffering that he is about to endure is God's perfect will. And because of that, Jesus has a greater capacity, a greater resolve to fulfill God's will. To summarize, Jesus' time in prayer was a legitimate request to be spared of the anguish of bearing your sin. But it was not a prayer asking the Father to change the Father's will or rejecting the Father's will. It was only a petition that the Father's will might be realized in some other way. Because all throughout history, God has often changed his actions in accordance with man's petitions. In doing this, though Jesus' request was not granted, two things happened in Jesus' heart. First, it confirmed to Jesus that the things he was about to experience were ordained of his Father in love. Because he knows the Father loves him. He knows the Father desires to give good gifts unto him. He knows that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we have the petitions of our heart. Second, it brings Jesus to a deeper place of resolution that he would endure the cup of wrath that God has ordained for him. In other words, Jesus' prayer was as much about what took place in Jesus' heart to align with the Father as it was actually petitioning the Father for another way. If you want another example of this very thing, we don't have the time to go there this evening, but I would encourage you to listen to my sermon or to study 2 Samuel 12. In verses 15 through 25, we see in this passage that David and Bathsheba have had a child as a result of David's adultery with Bathsheba. And as a natural consequence of this adulterous relationship, God tells David, this child must die. Because that child is a testimony of David as the theocratic representative of, of God to his people of his evil. And it would, be a it, it would be a blight on the testimony of God if this child were allowed to live. So this child is sick unto death. And the Bible says that, that David spent the week on his face, face before the Lord, neither eating nor drinking, begging God to spare this child's life. Even though God had already ordained, he had already said this child must die. He was begging God for the life of this child. A useless prayer if God would, could not change that pronouncement. Once the child died, 
David got up, cleaned himself up, went and ate and went about his business, and the servants were confused. They thought when they told David that the child had died, that he would become worse, that his anguish would become worse, that he would become absolutely inconsolable. I mean, he hadn't eaten, he hadn't bathed, he hadn't done anything. He'd just been on his face before the Lord in the temple day and night, begging God for the life of this child. What will his reaction be when he finds the child dies? And David's reaction was he got up, he cleaned himself up, he went and ate, and he worshiped before the Lord. Actually, he worshiped before the Lord, then he ate. Let me get that order right because it's kind of important. How could this be? And the servants wanted to know that. How is it possible that you were, you were so broken up before the child died, but then when he died, it's like, okay, done. Was it all just fake? No. But David testifies of this. He says, while the child was alive, it was possible that God might show mercy. Maybe, just maybe, God could fulfill his will in some other way than to allow the child to die. And so David, for as long as the child was alive, was petitioning God, God, if there is any other way to allow this, your testimony to be maintained without this child having to die, let it be so. But throughout that prayer, it's not recorded, but I guarantee you it was there. Somewhere in that prayer was, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Because that is what allowed the attitude of David at the death of his son, which is, the Lord's will has now been done. So he got up and he cleaned himself up and he worshipped and he moved on with life because God's will was done. It was a time where David... His heart was being aligned with God so that David could operate under the confidence of knowing that he had done everything he could and that God's will had been done in the manner that God desired. And so David was content. I hope this is making sense. It's a deep concept. But I, I, if, you, if you grab a hold of it, it will fundamentally change your prayer life and it might fundamentally change your life life. The point then is that prayer is an effort with a twofold effect. First, it changes things as God responds to our positions, our petitions in accordance with his will. That as we request things of God, if they are in line with God's will, then it changes things. Second, it changes us helping us understand God's will better and conforming our heart and will to God's heart and will. What does this mean for you? Let me give you an example of, of this, and, and I often use this example because I believe it's very clear, especially to those of you that are parents. We've talked before about my children and my children's petitions. My children are quite bold in their petitions, particularly as it, comes, as it comes to treats and such, the things that they desire. And children often are very bold in the things that they desire. My hope and desire for my children in regard to their petitions is this, that my children would never, ever, ever stop asking dad for things, that they would always think that dad loves them enough that, that dad desires to give them the desires of their heart that dad wants them to be happy, that dad loves them, that dad desires to know what they want and will in any way he can work out those desires in their lives. 
So my child comes up to me and asks for a cookie. And as we've talked about before in relation to prayer, many things go through the father's mind when the child asks for a cookie. What time is it? How close are we to a meal? How well did they eat the last meal? Did they eat the last meal? Is there still food in the fridge from the last meal that they haven't eaten, that they're supposed to eat, that they're supposed to eat for the next meal so that I've told them there's nothing between this meal and the next meal because you didn't finish your food? How close are we to bedtime? How close are we to a circumstance where they need to actually sit still and not be on a sugar high? All of these things are running through dad's mind when dad is thinking about this petition. Now, my will for my children is several fold. I desire my children to be happy, but that's not the essence of my will for them. The essence of my will is that they would be healthy, is that they would be um, safe, and is that they would be proper functioning part of the family. This is the essence of my will for them. Everything that I do filters through these things. No, I'm not going to give you that knife. That's not safe. No, I'm not going to let you eat 15 cookies. That's not safe healthy. So I'm thinking about what is best for my child on a broad level, right? On a macro level. Yes, but what's best for me right now, dad, is 15 cookies. Okay, that might be best for you right now, but that's not best for you in the long run. I'm not going to give that to you. I'm looking at head child. I love you. And the child walks away saying, dad doesn't love me. He didn't give me 15 cookies. And I'm saying, child, I love you. Therefore, I'm not giving you 15 cookies. This is a perspective difference between father and child. My hope and my prayer is that as my children get older and they petition me, they petition me with confidence that dad actually does want to give them things. And when they ask and they don't get the petition or they do get the petition, that these things are running through their mind. I asked dad and he gave to me because he loves me. Or I asked dad and he said no because he loves me. Either way, my desire is that whether they get a yes or a no, it's because they know that I love them and they trust that I love them. And that if dad says no 10 times in a row, they still have the confidence to come and ask me an 11th time for something. Because they know that the 10 times in a row that dad has said no, it's not because dad doesn't like me and is just going to say no every time, but because all 10 of those times as I have asked my father for something, it has been something that's not in my best interest. But who knows, maybe in the 11th time, the desire of my heart will also be in my best interest and I'm going to ask. That's the desire of my heart for my children. But there's another desire on, of my heart for my children. And the other desire of my heart for my children is that when they ask and they get a no, they use that no as a layer of understanding dad better and of increasing the confidence that if dad said no to this, it's not what's best for me. To the extent that with each no they get, they understand a little bit better what dad wants and a little bit better how to get yeses. So if dad does not like spending, and I believe I've given this illustration before, it may have been a while ago, if dad does not like spending $5 for cotton candy at the, at, at the fair, maybe it is that I'll ask dad for $5 cotton candy once, and, and I'll say, no, child, 
I'm not spending $5 on a thing of cotton candy. And then they might ask a second time, and I'll say, no, child, I'm not spending $5 on a thing of cotton candy. And the third time, they'll say, hey, Dad, on our way home from the fair, can we get a $1 ice cream cone at McDonald's? Well, $1 is significantly less than 5 And maybe it would be that Dad is willing to handle a $1 ice cream cone, but not a $5 cotton candy. And they can use the nose to adjust their hearts to want what Dad wants for them. You see what I'm saying here? That Jesus petitioned the Father for his will, but in getting the no, the cup cannot pass from you, that's okay because Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then it also gave Jesus the resolve to say, this is now what's best for me and others, and I'm going to do it because my Father loves me. And this cup did not pass from me, not because my father hates me, but because my father loves me, this cup did not pass from me. Let me give you another illustration. Maybe I don't have an operating vehicle, so I begin to ask God to provide for me a car. I don't get anything. So I take the principle and begin to think about what I actually need. Lord, I don't actually need a car. I just need a way to get to work in church. So I begin praying, instead, God, give me a car. I begin praying that God would give me a means by which to get to work in church. Now, I don't want to pray that prayer because maybe you'll provide for me like a bike, right? And, but, but, but that's the thing. What am I actually seeking? What is actually the Lord's will? See, I have now refocused my desire from God give me a car to God give me a means by which to get to work and church, right? This is a different focus, though I'm praying for the car because I want to get to work and church. Or was I, right? Or was I? So I'm praying this prayer, and then God gives me a car. Well, what just happened? God showed me through a fundamental alteration of the manner of my prayer, His will for me knowing that God gave me the car, not for the car's sake. I pray for a car. God says, no, I'm not going to give you a car. I pray for a means by which to get to work in church. God says, here's a car to get to work in church. All of a sudden, I have just realized that through a slight alteration of my perspective, God has taught me what he wants of me. Knowing that God gave me the car, not for the car's sake, but for the sake of getting to work in church will change something in me. It will change the gift. I'll understand that the car was given to me not just because it's a car, not because I wanted a car, but because God wants me to get to work in church. And he's facilitated a means by which for me to get to work in church. And that means if God gave me the car, I better make it to work into church. I better make it a priority because that's what I prayed for and that's what God gave a means by which to get to work in church. Do you, do you, do you see this, this fundamental alter, alteration here? The results may be the same, but there's a fundamental alteration in my request. When I don't see the petition come one way, start thinking about what, what maybe I'm asking for and, 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 and what maybe God might actually want me to be asking for. Or maybe God doesn't give me the car. Maybe I ask for a car and I get nothing, so then I ask for a means by which to get to work in church and God opens up a, 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 an opportunity for me to carpool with some other people that go to work in church. 
and he shows me perhaps a church that's closer to home, that's biblical and right, or whatever the case may be. Now God has again directed my path through my prayers. God did not want me getting my own car to get to work in church. God wanted me with a group of people, maybe coworkers that I could share the gospel with. Maybe he was actually trying to direct me to a church that was a little bit closer in locale. And so he allowed me to go through a circumstance whereby I would not be able to get to the other church so that he could direct me to the church that he wants me to be in. And because of the manner of my prayers, as I identify these things, my heart should have the confidence it needs to act upon what I'm seeing. But I don't want to carpool, but that's what God wants for you. God's answered your prayers, so align your heart with it and look for God's purpose. But I don't want to change churches. But if that's what God has provided for you, God has answered your prayer, so align your heart and look for God's purpose. This is what we're talking about this evening. Prayer is a partnership with God and the means by which we first receive of God, but second, align our heart with God's will. It is a means by which for God to change us as much as it's a means by which for us to affect the heart of God. Now, we could spend a whole week just giving examples. I would encourage you to be thinking of this on your own and to look for examples in your own life. But this is what Jesus did in the garden. And in this prayer, we can tap into God's power for our own lives. That as we echo the sentiment of Jesus Christ in the garden, where he got down on his knees, praying for something specific, asking that this cup might be removed from him, but praying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, then the next time he gets on his knees, he says, if or since this cup it will not pass from me, thy will be done, his heart has been aligning. His heart has been changing. And so too it can be with us. We pray, we ask, we seek, we knock, importunity, persistence, all of those things we've talked about throughout the book of Luke. And as we layer these elements of prayer one on top of another, it's not just about us looking for God to give us what we want. It's about us looking for the very character of our Father and how we can please Him. It is about us aligning our hearts with God's heart, us seeking out God's will and desiring God's will, not our own will. And yes, we have our petitions, but we go to Him and we ask Him boldly. And then if He says no, then we start to change our will to find out what the will of the Father is and we seek His will and we seek His pleasure and we seek His blessing and then we find ourselves aligned with Him and there's no better place to be. And it's layered on top of these principles that God desires to give us good things that we cannot pray in the flesh and expect God to give us what we petition. We cannot pray in, in, lust, in the lust of our flesh, that uh, as we pray and as we bring our petitions before the Lord, it is in His will that we find His answers. And all of this uh, points us to how Christ prayed in the garden in agony, recognizing the cup that was before Him. And I hope that this has been clear enough at least to bring about this desired understanding. Are you praying this way? Is this what your prayer life 
looks like? Or are you constantly in a state of alienation to where uh, you don't even want to pray because you feel like when you pray, um, bad things happen? Or when you pray, it's like God gives you the exact opposite. You're afraid. I've I've talked to many people, uh, even in the past several months, who are actually afraid to pray because they feel like God punishes them through their prayers. Is that you this evening? Are you afraid to come boldly so that you don't ask for your desires because you're afraid if your desires aren't God's desires, you're going to anger him? Well, not if you see God the right way. When you pray for something, desiring it, if you don't see it, then start to look for where your will doesn't align with the Father's will. Start looking for why what you think is best is not what God thinks is best for you. Because then you'll start finding what God thinks is best for you, and that's where blessing is found. That's where joy is found. That's where resolve is found. Now, Jesus, drinking the cup of God's wrath, would not bring him to a place of happiness. But it did bring him to a place of resolve. That he was going to do the will of the Father. That he was going to do as God asked him. And we know this from scriptures, that he did it for the joy that was set before him. Because he knew that through this would come exaltation. Through this would come everything that he wanted. Because it was the will of the Father for him. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.